0: Roger that, Houston. All systems, All systems five, five, 5 5 But what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. That's Get away from her, you bitch. i I'm, right. I'm Batman. No. Oh, do not. There is no tomorrow. Welcome to the Nerdfest podcast. Today we've got...
1: Ian Mayer. Dan Watkins. Peter Johnson. John Farthing.
0: And I'm Hazel Burton. Um, I'm excited for two reasons. Firstly, we've got Ian Mayer in the flesh.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm here. As no two Ians can appear at the same place at the same time. We almost we have... got you. We did until about an hour but we ago. We don't know what would have happened. It this could have true. caused cosmic calamities of uh, all manner yeah. of all manner of things.
2: Like the Cloverfield Paradox.
1: Mm. Just about to go into that. It yes. could have been, could be as disastrous as that. I mean, or is it? I guess we'll find we, out when we talk We could talk start about another
0: it. paradox in another universe just by having you in the same vicinity. We
1: probably have done that already.
0: Mm. Anyway, <laughs> the second reason that I'm excited is we have just come back from seeing Black Panther. I think we should kick things off with a review.
2: Could we have a synopsis first? Who is this panther? <laughs>
0: Who is this panther? Yes, I will do a synopsis. So, after the death of his father, T'Challa returns home to the African nation of Wakanda to take his rightful place as king. When a powerful enemy suddenly reappears, T'Challa's mettle as king and as Black Panther gets tested when he's drawn into a conflict that puts the fate of Wakanda and the entire world at risk. Faced with treachery and danger, the young king must rally his allies and release the full power of Black Panther to defeat his foes and secure the safety of his people.
2: That is the film. (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, that's the film we watched yeah it is yeah. we're gonna be talking mild spoilers so if you haven't seen black panther please we urge you to go and see it and then come back and listen to the podcast
2: yeah i really liked it uh really liked the aesthetic of it really liked the style great cast and i'm a fan of black panther as a character anyway so it is a thumbs up from me or a claw up <coughs> to be in a panther style
3: well i was um I didn't know anything about it. I was expecting a Blaxploitation re- remake of the Pink Panther. Um, <laughs> so I went in. It wasn't exactly what I expected, but I, I really enjoyed it. I, I liked how they made a origin movie without it necessarily being an origin movie. That makes sense. You, so you got a sense of the start of the character and how the character evolved, mm. despite the fact that we'd already met him in Civil War. Great action scenes. Um, again, Marvel doing something different rather than just a, a generic superhero movie. We've got, we got a strange James Bond type vibe to it as well, as well as the uh, the African stuff, a real good good mix of genres, great characters, great villain for once as mm-hmm. well, so whether Marvel have finally solved their villain problem.
1: Yeah, they do great villains, then kill them off. I mean, I'm a big fan of Marvel movies in general. I, I've talked about this at boring length. Um, this is a solid film. It's just, it's a really, really solid film. It's something Marvel haven't quite done before. It's... Um, a film largely contained in like a, a nation state. It'd be like if Thor was set mostly in Asgard and about the kind of the inner turmoils of Asgard. An amazing cast, I thought, yeah. and lots of people I'd like to see again. Lots of like faces I didn't uh, didn't know. Um, the actress who played Shuri, uh, Black Panther's sister, was Letitia Wright. Letitia Wright. Now, apparently she's been in Black Mirror and in Doctor Who, and I can't remember from either yeah. of those. She was in the Black Museum episode
2: of Black Mirror, last episode of the most recent series. Which I haven't watched, which explains well, she's why main, I didn't recognise that. Was the main it. character in that? Yeah, she was the girl visiting the museum.
3: Yeah. So she was playing a lot younger in Black Panther than she actually is, in, I would imagine. Maybe. I got, yeah, I got the impression she was like, a teenage girl, or meant to be a teenage girl in Black Panther than in Black Mirror. I, I wouldn't have placed them as the same person, actually.
1: Yeah, She was charm personified and um, I really thought the kind of the family stuff really worked. Mm-hmm. You know, they really felt like a, a loving but slightly bickering family. Mm. I, I loved really how
0: cool. strong the women were in this film. Like Angela Bassett, Lupita, what's her name? Second? Uh, Lupita Nyong'o. Nyong'o, there we go. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the, the, the woman who played the sister, or aka Q from James Bond, but much better. Um, I thought they were incredible and really added a lot of dynamics to the film.
2: And uh, General Okoye, uh, better known as Michonne from The Walking Dead, yes. very very cool, very handy with a spear. I guess all those years Samurai of fighting zombies. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
3: Could see Andy Circus without some CGI on top of him for once. <laughs> Although he had some CGI, I presume, taking a bit of him off.
1: Yeah, just a limb. <laughs> just just a, a limb. Just, it, it, yeah, migrated from his face down his arm. But um, Andy Circus as as Claw. Uh, illustrates the thing which Marvel have been doing amazingly in the cinematic universe, which is take frankly ridiculous characters and making them somehow credible and cool. Even uh, the Winter Soldier. That has a the character called Batrock, who's Captain America villain from the comics. I mean, that is Batrock the Great Leaper, this kind of like fighting French jewel thief with a terrible accent, who's just a, kind of a joke character, yet in that he was dangerous and cool. They've done the same thing with Claw. Claw is... A really kind of weird Sonic based villain that's got what looks like a radar dish on one hand and a, and kind of a stupid suit. Here he's this horrible, grimy, you know, mercenary guy. And they did it with um, Umbaku in Black Panther, which is a minor character who was originally in the Avengers, who's um, a, a, Black, a Black Panther villain, sort of most frequently, who in the comics is Manape. Again, it's sort of a slightly ridiculous setup. He is a tribe leader, he's, he's very much. Um, more villainous in in the comics than he's portrayed in the film. Um but again kind of a character which could have been terribly executed. But in this he was this kind of stoic complex you know dangerous man. It was re- just really impressive to see. Um is that why his tribe had the gorilla motif? Exactly. Yeah. And actually I thought they did a lot of that quite well kind of like the animal symbolism. Yeah. You can you they can be kind of A sort of terrible, cartoonish portrayal of Africa, you could imagine, with a lot of what they did. But it was, like, perfectly done. I I was just really impressed with a lot of it.
2: What I also liked was that there wasn't a lot of setting up done for the Avengers, which I was kind of half expecting. I thought they might spend a lot of time setting stuff up or there being an infinity stone in Wakanda. And the fact that, apart from one possible mention in the post-credits scene, Mm. it was a standalone film that you could watch and enjoy by itself
1: it's interesting now we've seen wakanda we realize how technologically advanced it is and it explains why uh thanos attacks it in the trailer for uh, the next avengers film you know why it's a primary target it's it's probably the place most likely to um be able to defeat him it was interesting that like the uh very first sequence in the film is kind of retelling the story of the origin of wakanda and it is it is about vibranium it's about the metal which has become. Uh, kind of central to its technology and, and sort of it's woven throughout um, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe it's I mean it was a chunk of magic falling from the sky that made this place into a you know into a magical place um, not literally but kind of in, in a sort of uh, the technological magic came from that it's why it is the most advanced place in the universe I, th- I said it was really well handled like yeah, um, I mean, it I is agree. central to what it is
0: yeah I think the the scene where um there's the the car replica and she, and um she's in the in kind of driving the car, but it's actually in South Korea. I thought that was a genius idea and was done really really well that had me on the edge of my seat that one
3: yeah if um Ryan Johnson wants to know how to do a casino sequence that isn't <laughs> out of place in the middle of a film, should maybe watch Black Panther?
1: <laughs> I thought it was interesting tonally as well because um you know if you take like the sliding scale of silliness in Marvel films from Let's say Thor so Ragnarok as, as the sillier end to, let's say Civil War or the Winter Soldier on the more serious end. It's kind of around the Doctor Strange wacky spectrum, um, as in there's real jokes in it that are really funny. Um, there's they're not afraid to put uh, kind of humour in action sequences, but the ac- action sequences uh, were really strong. It was a really well pitched film, mm-hmm. I thought. Really kind of well um, consi- consistently toned film.
3: Surprisingly political as well. Uh, it was quite mm-hmm. open about its politics mm-hmm. and didn't shy away from dealing with sort of issues in race and issues of colonialism and things like that. It was all it was all in there in, in a way that didn't stop being fun. But I thought you know the villain was conflicted. I think there mm-hmm. was a, he wasn't an out and out bad guy.
0: Yeah, I think if we just saw, saw the film from his perspective, we wouldn't have saw, seen him as a villain. I, he did some pretty villainous stuff to get there, but he had a purpose and a mission and he felt it was his right to um, do what he did. So uh, yeah, there's quite a, some kind of, yeah. A lot of the best line. villains
1: think they have a point. I mean, it's true. only like the Hannibal Lecters that know they're actually, you know, insane. Mm-hmm. Very true. But there's a lot of people with, with drive and commitment to do what seems to be a terrible thing. It's only it's only on the... Uh,
0: yeah, the most interesting villains do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, surprising number of rhinos in this film. I don't think <laughs> you've really prepared for the, the volume of rhino. Um, you, you will see. Yeah.
2: I would like to express my appreciation for the rhinos. Yes, Yeah, so they, they, they were they, great.
1: solid rhino work. There's not enough parts for young rhino actors these days, but like this really pushed <laughs> what them was out. my least favourite thing in it? Didn't like the rhinos. Because there's no joy in your soul. No joy.
3: Well, what, how do they have giant rhinos? I, I understand they've got science, so was, science yes. made that's, that's
2: just how big rhinos are. <laughs>
3: they, they were regular-sized rhinos. They were not regular-sized rhinos. Have
2: you met a rhino before? I
3: haven't met a rhino but some of my best friends are rhinos.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, your rhino friends are short.
3: I'm thinking actually when I did see a rhino it might have been a baby one. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: I wasn't going to bring this up John but sod it. Um, You were saying on our first ever podcast that you didn't think that Black Panther was going to be a hit. It was going to be Marvel's first flop.
3: I I eat my words. I'm entirely Mm. entirely wrong. Um, Um, Could I request you
2: feed your words to a rhino?
3: (laughs) A, a full size one or a baby rhino.
2: A regular sized one. Yeah, Johnny.
3: whichever one's to hand. <laughs> right. um, I think it's a. I mean, it's a. It's a great film. I, the reason I thought it might get overlooked was simply because we're a month away, or just over a month away from Infinity War, and I thought the excitement of Infinity War might overwhelm it. But I, I wonder
4: if that's a reason that it didn't appear to do anything that hugely sets up that film. because yeah. there isn't enough time, and they can't guarantee everyone's seen it by mm. now.
0: And also February sucks ass. So (laughs) going to the cinema is the best thing to do. Mm, I think this is is this other than
1: like the Avengers films, the, the just the film with its own ensemble, like its biggest ensemble. So if you think about the Marvel films, they're fond of pulling in characters from other areas, but Mm. I think this is the film that um, introduced the most and most successfully kind of its own raft of characters. Yeah. It's Mm. a
3: team, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, it's, It's a family, but it's also a team. Mm
1: -hmm. yeah absolutely it was um, I thought it yeah it's a really solid film it's it's well within you know Marvel Marvel don't fail they haven't done it yet (laughs) I'll say say they don't don't fail the Avengers will be great even it's interesting because even like the the sort of the slight misses they've had still because of like the fabric of the universe they're in are just always seem to Mm -hmm. be raised Mm -hmm. slightly
2: Um, one thing I noticed I did when watching black panther was when the marvel studios titles came up towards the start i could feel myself kind of getting a bit excited about it thinking Mm. it's another marvel film (laughs) this is going to be great and i know they only introduced those titles a few films ago but they already have that effect that say, the 20th Century Fox theme used to have at the start of a Star Wars film yeah. and that kind of thing. It's like, <gasps> here we go, superheroes.
3: Mm-hmm. Yay! I associate that 20th Century Fox theme. I don't associate it with Fox. I associate it with Star Wars. And mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you hear that, that do 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 For me, that's Star Wars. Here's,
1: here's something. Like, other than um kind of the space-set Marvel films, I think this is was, like, the most colourful as well. I think this yeah. was the, the most, like, striking visually um it really was impressive and like wakanda this this you know fictional nation state it's definitely a fantasy place but i loved the kind of design of it this sort of contemporary architecture plus was really uh, a really interesting look we haven't quite seen anywhere like that before
3: it was like a weird mix of contemporary architecture but still with like traditional african design and everything in there mm. it was really really well, well designed
1: i mean i think it shows how little we see africa on film i mean i know like a, a fictional africa i can't I can't think of many sci fi set in Africa, whereas I've seen like versions um, of London. District and, 9, I think is District the only. District 9, yeah. yeah, which, you know, South right. Africa. Dread 3D was shot in um, was it Cape, was it Cape Town or Johannesburg. I know it was shot in South oh. Africa, but for America. Mm. Not really um, South Africa. You know, we, yeah. we it's a really, as a sci-fi fan, I want more of this. I want more things mm. I haven't seen, and, it, and it's really
3: unexplored veins. There's a film called Dust Devil, which I haven't seen um which is a Richard Stanley film, he did hardware and famously got the sack from the end of Dr. Miller. Yeah. yeah, um and he is I don't know if he is South African, but he certainly lives in South Africa. And he made a film called Dust Devil, which is a horror sci-fi film based on African folklore, which I hear is an interesting mess. Uh we'll get around to watching. Given it at the some director, point. that's not yes.
1: <laughs> really a surprise. Uh interesting. Yeah,
2: but really nice to have a film largely set in Africa with a largely African cast and apparently and crew as well. yeah, apparently yeah. most yeah. of the crew were African-American as well. So yeah, more representation. Good thing. I say this for us speaking as five white people around a table, <laughs> yeah. but-,
0: but I think, yeah, I know what you mean. For me kind of like growing up, it's important to um, have strong women on film and the same kind of goes for this. I think it's a, a really, really great, um, great step forward.
1: Again, it's difficult to confront from a position of privilege, but like, mm. um, what was interesting to me was, like, growing up seeing like African spears, I never associated them with the future. You know, like, the, this kind of imagery, the, um, like a guy with, um, a, uh, like wooden, uh, a wooden sort of lip expander thing. I'm afraid I don't even know what they're called, but to me, I'm always associated that with, um, with tribalism and sort of an, you know, the past and the kind of an anti anti technology like vibe, and that is just how they've been portrayed to me, I guess. You know, growing up, so seeing this kind of iconography in the context of sharp suits and, you know, and futuristic tech is just brand new to me. I mean, yeah, it's an African spear, but it's also a sonic weapon. You know, and it's mm-hmm. it's interesting. Mm-hmm. It's it's. I want more of it. Yeah, a lot of that
2: resonated in the scene set in the museum quite early on in the film. A lot of that was items that you tend, or some people tend to associate with Africa, this idea of tribalism, of the past, of almost primitivism. And the film is showing that, one, Africa is not like that, and two, items like that in museums have largely just been taken by people from mm-hmm. Britain and things like mm-hmm. that, and perhaps should not be in
4: museums. Those evil historians doing it.
2: Yeah, there's. I mean, there's a whole massive ethical issue in museums for decades now about repatriation and how much of the stuff in the British Museum particularly, and I noticed that it was the Museum of Great Britain, not the British Museum, but Mm -hmm. same thing. Um, (laughs) There's a lot of stuff in that museum that, incredible as it is to be able to see it in London, a lot of it probably should be where it belongs. Mm -hmm. But
3: that's a whole I I wonder if we had a fictional, fictional museum deliberately... Yeah. I wonder whether the British Museum probably didn't want to copy It with something that was quite critical of them.
1: Yeah, oh, yeah, thing. it was definitely a similar to but legally distinct from yeah. uh, <laughs> situation. Um, how good's uh, Chadwick Boseman um, as the yeah, mm. Like, that's a dapper dude. You know what I mean? And what what was really cool? Was this cause, so in Civil War, you know, he's a man on a he's a man on a mission, and he's a man in kind of a hostile situation. So there's a bit of armor to him. There's a bit of front. But seeing both that and his association with family, you know what I mean. This, this yeah. kind of love and joking, you know, and joking about and anger, you know, all these, all these things, all this like range.
0: Cool. I
1: yeah. yeah. No, I mean that's uh, that's a guy who's going to do mm. cool things. Uh, so yeah,
2: and really different to the rest of the Avengers as well. He brings a different kind of character to the team. But purely from a looks point of view. Um, Lupita Nyong'o plays his ex in the film and can you imagine how good looking the children of Chadwick Boseman and Lupita Nyong'o would be?
0: Cool, alright, so how many how many rhinos out of ten would we give Black Panther?
1: It's the rhino scale, mm-hmm. right um, mm, I don't know man, it's, it's high for me but whether it's a seven or an eight and I know that sounds slightly critical but I, I promise it's not, I, I thought this was an extremely solid uh, addition to the Marvel franchise
2: I would give it eight regular-sized rhinos out of ten and probably have it near my top five MCU films.
3: <laughs>
0: um, i give it eight regular and then one mini one, so it would make it eight and a half. Um, only because I'm not... Like, like Thor Ragnarok, I couldn't wait to go and see that again. I'll go and see Black Panther again, but I'm not itching at to, to to go and see it again. But uh, yeah, I loved it.
3: It's a solid eight rhinos for me.
4: Uh, a good seven and a half charging rhinos for me.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs>
1: I don't think there could be more rhinos in today's content, but yeah, we're really going for the rhinos.
2: If there is not an army of rhinos in Infinity War, I will be disappointed and will be taking a point off
0: that one. (laughs) Cool. But yeah, go and and see it. It's awesome. Okay, let's do a film buff or film bluff. Anyone who's not listened to this segment before, um, this is our regular quiz. Um, where each of us nerds recites three pieces of movie trivia, but only two of them are true. One of them is a complete bluff. Um, So we've got to work out which one that is. And of course, please feel free to play along at home. Um, Daniel, you go first.
2: Okay. Uh, Amy and I went to see Coco the other week and we're both left uh, emotional blubbering wrecks by the end of it. Excellent film, probably one of Pixar's best. And with that in mind, this is a Pixar film buff or film bluff here are three things about Pixar. One of them is a bluff. Number one, Inside Out director Pete Doctor is a big fan of British comics, one of which helped inspire the film. Number two, Boo in Monsters, Inc. was voiced by a real toddler who they recorded while she just played in the studio. And number three, parts of Finding Dory were changed or removed following the release of Blackfish and the backlash to SeaWorld. I will now hide my face so I don't give it away. Mm.
0: i know the second one's true i think it might be the director's daughter or friend or something there's definitely an element of either, truth in it yeah it's either a happy accident like that she was visiting one day and she's like oh she sounds cute um or that it was deliberate i can't remember which but i think i think that's true
4: the the first one about the british comic that's the numbskulls is, is the british comic <laughs> which is all set in someone's head Uh, and they're all arguing about what's happening and what they see on a big screen in front of them. There was a TV
3: series as well with the woman that plays Lisa Simpson, Mm. which was based inside someone's head. I think it was a sitcom where there were characters inside the head. Herman's head or something, is that? Yes, that that might be, yeah. Could
0: we have a third one again, Dan?
2: The third one was parts of Finding Dory were either changed or removed following the release of Blackfish and the backlash to SeaWorld. Can
3: I ask which parts? And how they were changed. <laughs>
2: the film is set in a marine amusement park. Take from that what you will. Now,
1: I believe that is true. I seem to recall suppose, hearing oh. about that at the time. Now, I believe the second one is also true. Now, I think the first one, then, is a cunning ploy. Because it's quite plausible that numskulls could inspire Inside Out. Mm-hmm. But I don't believe it did. So that's certainly what I'm going to say.
3: I remember at the time people saying that it was very similar to the schools in a way that suggested they should be suing Pixar. I think one is a lie.
0: Yeah, I think one is a lie. Dan's face is behind his jumper. <laughs> doesn't react. <laughs> but, um, so
2: what's it going to be, Dan? Number one is the lie. Yeah, <laughs> Pete Doctor might be a big fan of the Beano, but has never publicly acknowledged it as far mm-hmm. as I'm aware. For legal reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. He might have been a dandy guy.
4: Has anyone seen that uh, French, I think it was a student film that was made a couple of years before Up, of the uh, the old person in the house and the balloons they attached to it to stop it being destroyed? Oh, search that mm. one out. Mm, that one's mm. interesting. And you will be surprised how similar they are.
0: Okay, my film buff or film bluff. Um, seemingly unrelated, but there is a link. Okay, Paul Newman is one of only four actors to be nominated for an Academy Award in five different decades. The others are Laurence Olivier, Michael Caine and Jack Nicholson. Okay, that's the one. Second one, uh, speaking of Jack Nicholson, he is the first person to use the C word in a Hollywood movie. And the third one is the film containing the most swear words of all time is Pulp Fiction, which has 296 naughty words. Now, I
3: think, are we talking about fiction films? Because I think there is a documentary called Fuck, which has the record for the most number of uses of the word bloody, confusingly. No, uh, the most number of, of that word.
0: Yeah, we're talking uh, fiction fiction. films. I
4: remember something. There's one film where someone just says the word fuck a ridiculous amount of times all in one scene,
3: straight out of the other. Plane, trains and automobiles.
1: There's the scene in Four Weddings and a Funeral when he wakes up and repeatedly says the word Mm. fuck. Not in cinema, but in TV. There is uh, a scene in The Wire where two detectives essentially communicate their findings of an entire Ooh. crime scene by merely stating the word fuck. It's like Hodor, but we yeah.
3: <laughs> And South Park, is what South Park the movie, has a ridiculous number of uses as well.
2: Yeah, well, there was an episode of South Park when they learned that they would be allowed to use the word shit on TV and it wouldn't be censored. And they actually put a counter up in the corner of the screen during the episode. <laughs> and I think it got up to 160 something oh, in yeah. 20 yeah. minutes. <laughs> and there was that
1: random episode of, Song of Songs of Praise, which... I don't know what happened, but it was just repeated constantly. Yeah, through. I
2: mean, Diane Louise Jordan just, yeah, yeah, crazy. just
1: went off on one. Yeah, yeah. No, no,
2: that um, With the Academy Award one, the first one, uh, the five decades mm-hmm. thing, it, are we talking just acting Oscars here, or does that cover all the awards?
0: No, that's acting Oscars.
3: I think Jack Nicholson did use the C word, and it will have been in, I think, Five Easy Pieces or something like that, maybe. I can't remember the film, but it's... The film
0: is Carnal Knowledge. Carnal
3: Knowledge, yes. Mm. Uh, I hear it's the first Hollywood movie to use the C-word, so I think that is true. I don't think Pulp Fiction is true. I think that's a lie. Because um, I think Goodfellas had more. I think South Park had more.
2: The Departed had a lot of swear words as well.
3: Mm. Mm. I made a lot of swear words while watching the late Transformers film, <laughs> if that counts. Mm.
1: I think it should, but... Um... I'm not sure about the Pulp Fiction one. That That is the one which is standing out to me as being perhaps untrue.
2: Meryl Streep was not listed among the actors, but she's been getting Oscar nominations since the 70s, surely?
3: Are we specifically talking about actors rather than actors, actresses?
0: just actors, yeah.
3: Mm.
2: As in male actors? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. She's good, but she's not
4: that good. I'm going to stick with Pulp Fiction being the, the not true.
3: I'm going to go with
1: Pulp Fiction being a lie. I'm going to go with Pulp Fiction being a lie as well.
2: I'm going to go with the crowd.
0: Yes, um, Pulp Fiction is number three on the list that I read, which, you know, for all intents and purposes, is I'm going with true. Um, Bad Santa is second. And number one is Quentin Tarantino again, but it's Reservoir Dogs containing 342 mm. naughty words. So, yes, made that one up.
3: Okay, I have uh, I have a film buff or film bluff. Again, entirely unrelated. Um, other than there is a a music theme to two of them. Okay, um, fact number one is that Robert Altman got paid a total of seventy five thousand dollars for directing MASH. His fifteen year old son wrote the lyrics to the theme tune and has so far received over two million dollars in royalties. Uh, fact number two, uh, Chevy Chase famously in the eighties, Van a rad- Red Light. And was pursued by a undercover police car in a driving a Chevrolet, meaning that Chevy Chase was involved in a Chevy chase. <laughs> <laughs> no. And number three, um, the song "Maniac" from the film Flashdance was originally written about another film, an early eighties horror film called Maniac. And the line she dances like she'll never dance before was originally, "He'll kill your cat and nail it to the door." <laughs>
1: Fine, fine,
3: (laughs) fine selection of uh, questions.
1: (laughs) I
4: do not believe, even if the stuff of it going for another movie was true, they would really have that line in it. So that rules that one out for me.
0: I think the Chevy Chase one sounds like something John would make up, though.
3: Yeah, but I really want it to be true. (laughs) Mm. And what was the what was the other one? Uh, the MASH that Robert oh, Altman right. got $75,000 okay. for directing MASH. His son got two million in royalties for co-writing the theme tune. The theme tune, which of course has been covered by many bands mm-hmm. since, which is Suicide is Painless.
4: Painless being the dentist in the movie MASH.
1: Ah, there you but go. But
0: see, knowing John, like I do, he might put a sensible fact in there just to throw us off and then throw in two wacky ones, which are actually true.
4: Well, that's how you play this game, <laughs> Exactly. Isn't it? Yeah.
2: Would $75,000 be an appropriate fee for directing a film? in the,
3: When did MASH come out? 70s, early 70s.
4: Quite often a director will take a movie at a different budget if they really want to do that film. And you know, it, was it was the start
3: was, of Altman's career as
4: well. How long did MASH run on TV?
3: A long time, yeah, so I assume... 15 but, years,
4: something like yeah.
3: that. He wrote the lyrics, but not the music, if this is true. So I don't know whether he would have got money you, for I, the...
4: I think it used to have a sung version, or maybe on the end and not on the beginning, or there was something... Or it had like a swing version.
1: They famously or took the
3: Suicide is Painless lyrics off for the TV version because it was network TV.
4: Yeah, they, yeah, they, they weren't going for that kind of vibe,
1: were mm.
3: they? It was
4: more of a sort of bittersweet... Uh, but song royalties, that doesn't necessarily matter. If you wrote the song together and then it's only the musics that's used, you can still sometimes... Still get there. Yeah.
3: Well, maybe it's true then.
4: I think that one's true. Yeah.
0: Okay. I think number three is the bluff.
3: Number three, the maniac. Yeah.
1: I agree that number three is the bluff because I can imagine yeah. Chevy Chase being in a Chevy Chase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Gotta hope he was in a Chevy Chase.
3: And you
2: <laughs> I'm going with number three as well. I just need the Chevy
4: story to be true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, d- definitely three's a lie.
3: Uh, I'm afraid the Chevy Chase story is the lie. (laughs) Sorry,
0: Dan.
3: (laughs) So what was the lyric again? (laughs) He'll kill your cat and nail (laughs) it to the door. Is there a recording of this? It it was an early draft of the song.
0: Bearing Mm. in mind, I have two cats running around at the moment (laughs) who have got quite sensitive ears at the moment. (laughs) He didn't Um, mean it.
2: Can I go historical nerd here and tell you about Chevy Chase? No. Oh, go on. Okay. Thanks. Um, So Chevy Chase got his name from his grandmother, who was not called Chase, but was descended from the Douglas family, who go back centuries and centuries in Scotland. And there's a famous medieval ballad that tells of a huge battle between the Douglas family and the Percy family, who ruled Northumberland on the southern side of the border. And that was known as the Ballad of Chevy Chase, because Mm. it was a chase, as in a hunt, that took place in the Cheviot Hills in Northumberland. The ballad was incredibly famous in the 15th century, famous again in the 16th and 17th, again in the 18th, and Chevy chased the comedian's grandmother because she claimed descendancy from the Douglas family, knew the ballad, used to sing it to Chevy, uh, young Chevy, and when he needed a stage name, it popped into his head and he began to use it.
3: Is that why there is a Chevy Chase in Eldon Square in Newcastle? That is correct. Ah, that's I, I've always
1: wondered that. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, amazing that. local nerdery yeah. as well. That's that's fantastic. He's
3: actually called Cornelius Chase, isn't he? Yeah. yeah, But sadly, he was never, as far as I'm aware, involved in a Chevy Chase. <laughs>
2: if- Chevy Chase ever wants to come to the northeast of England. We will take him to the Cheviot Hills
3: and and chase him. (laughs)
4: Peter? Uh, Yeah, mine is about probably the the coolest sort of movie and TV car ever. Well, I'm not going to say what it is. See if you can tell what I'm talking about. Knight Rider? What what would The Batmobile. Batmobile? Of course it's the Batmobile. It's the 1966 Batmobile, the Adam West one. And so there are three facts about that. I'll give you a bit of stuff and then I'll say which of those are the three facts that you need to pick, which ones are true and which ones aren't. It's heavily based on the 1955 Lincoln Futura, which is a concept car car manufacturers make to test ideas out and sort of show what they can do. It was featured in the 1959 movie It Started With A Kiss, starring Carrie Fisher's mum, Debbie Reynolds. The Futura was hand-built in Turin and cost a quarter of a million dollars to develop, which is about two and a half million dollars in today's money but it was sold to car customizer George Barris in the mid-60s for a dollar. It rusted outside for a few years, but it was pressed into service when another supplier let the studio down, and Barris was challenged with creating the Batmobile in only three weeks. There were four original 60s Batmobiles, as three fibreglass copies were built the year after for promotional work, each with slight differences, but only number one appeared in the show. So the three facts I want you to decide true or false on are... It was featured in the 1959 movie starring Carrie Fisher's mum, that it was sold for a dollar, or that only number one appeared in the TV show. Hmm. I think
2: with the third one, I'm sure there would have been multiple Batmobiles that they used for car conventions and shows and promotional purposes. That's what the
4: fiberglass ones were for,
0: Mm -hmm. yes.
2: Yeah. That one makes sense to me. I would say that one's true.
0: Something in the back of my mind is saying the second one's true about a dollar. So it might be a different scenario, but I just think, mm, that rings a bell.
4: Why
1: was it sold for a dollar?
4: Because it was no use to them, I guess. Guess or you
1: made Better it up. poker mm. game or something. Yeah. Mm.
3: The, the <laughs> film is too specific. The fact that you picked a specific film and mentioned the actress and so on makes that a little bit too specific for me to be made up.
4: Or maybe that's what proves it's made yeah. up. Yeah,
3: mm. or maybe it's... The dollar thing
1: gets me. Because the value of, a car, like, scrapping it, you know, you can scrap a car and get more money for it, and you even could, you know, my my, my dad actually collects old, like, collects old cars a little bit, and, you know, even weird concept
3: cars and stuff like that as well.
1: I, I'm sure I'll be wrong, but I'm going to say that's the fake, because it's the dollar that throws it. I think
3: book. that they will have made one for the first series, and then when they made the film, between the first and second series... They would probably have made a more expensive one for the film, and then that one would go on to be used in the TV series, maybe.
4: I did say there are only four original Batmobiles, yeah. and also the that film was made in between af- the first almost immediately series, after yeah. the first series ended.
3: I don't believe that. I think there's probably been more than one on-screen Batmobile.
2: I'm going to say the Debbie Reynolds one is untrue, just so we've got all our bases could, covered. Could
3: you tell us what <laughs> how it appeared in the film? Uh, well, it
4: was painted red for mm-hmm. one thing, because um, they reckoned white, which the original one was, wouldn't show up on screen well. Everyone, everyone's watching me now. To was see this a black and white film? Uh, I don't know. It' mm, hard to say. Nineteen fifty nine could be either.
3: I think that's the kind of fact that will be true because I think that film will now probably only be. Of any interest to anybody because it's got the Batmobile in it. It's probably I feel, not a film that would be otherwise completely it forgotten. it doesn't
4: look like the Batmobile mm-hmm. in it, other than that in the way that the original. I like car the had.
3: idea of Debbie Reynolds shooting off with flames coming out of the back of the car at the end, <laughs> <laughs> and badly speeded up footage. Um, I think I think there's more than one Batmobile in the TV series.
0: Yeah, I agree with John.
4: Debbie and the dollar dollars, right? The actual answer is the last one it's very nearly true um mm. there's only one episode episode 69 the the <gasps> number four batmobile was <laughs> <that's> used in <it. laughs> uh, but otherwise it's it's the number one batmobile all the way mm. through
3: so what, what happened in episode 69 that there was a, a different batmobile
4: the car might have just been doing something else or they in might a have done position. they might have done two shots at
3: this, on the same day or all sorts of things i will look forward to watching episode 69 and
0: Shouting, that's not the bat. Be like the top of our list it
1: appears. <laughs> <laughs> Ian, have you got one? No, I certainly do. Okay. Back on Marvel Comics, um, you know, and Marvel films even. So Marvel is a, a, a comic company a most well known for their own superhero universe, but they've created and published a lot of other stuff. Like they've frequently done um, film tie-ins. They've actually done a couple of novelisation, um, adaptations of novels. Like there was a Wizard of Oz not so long ago, which was absolutely fantastic. But in the dim and distant past, uh, characters they create, they um, adapted a Stanley Kubrick film to comic form and expanded the story of it. Now, character, uh, at least one character created in that adaptation has become part of Marvel continuity. So I'm going to name three Marvel characters and perhaps tell you a little bit about them. And you need to decide which one of these originated in an adaptation of a Stanley Kubrick film. Okay. Okay. Now, the first one is Eddie Brock, who is a reporter for the Daily Planet and a photographer for the Daily Planet in in the Marvel continuity, who goes on to become Venom. He's going to be played by uh, Tom Hardy in the film that's coming up.
4: Is it actually Daily Planet?
1: Uh Daily Bugle, sorry. Yeah. Um yeah. God need to hand in my nerd card right now. Um Daily Bugle reporter. The second one goes by the name of Fancy Dan, who is one of the enforcers, a trio of three kind of like gangsters guys who turned up as uh in the Marvel continuity, as Spider Man villains, and they've appeared in like many other things. And the third one is Aaron Stack, who goes by Machine Man. Now Aaron Stack, um, uh, Machine Man is a, uh android living within uh, the Marvel Universe, um, you know, as a man, like trying to, a slight Pinocchio tale. Which one is it? And I can answer any other questions about the characters if you so you're, wish.
3: You're not going to tell us which Stanley Kubrick?
1: I'm certainly I'm not going to tell yeah. you which Stanley Kubrick
3: film. I would imagine that's a fancy Dan kind of, could be a Droog in a Clockwork Orange. Mm. I could could imagine that being a character that would fit into a Clockwork Orange.
4: Let's try another approach which movies do we think from Kubrick would have been adapted?
2: Could you have had a Machine Man in 2001 or is Hal the only machine in that film?
4: Well I was thinking AI for example but obviously that's not strictly a Kubrick film
3: It's a film that Kubrick directed It is
4: a film that
1: Kubrick directed
3: The only ones that I could conceivably see working as a comic book would be clockwork orange possibly 2001 a full metal jacket comic book could work
4: i don't think it would give rise to those characters would it no
2: Eyes wide shut
3: <laughs> <laughs>
4: yes the shining
0: yeah which is the only two stanley kubrick films i've seen so
3: no. <laughs> i can imagine the shining a comic book adaptation but again none of those characters I'm assuming the characters have changed quite some... St- I mean, Eddie Brock is the only one of those characters who who I know. Mm. Right. So...
1: The character as exists in the Marvel Universe now... I mean, some have changed along the way in, in various ways. Like, M- Machine Man's had a long and complex history and has been quite comedic in some ways and quite serious in others. The characters have evolved just by the, the fact that they've been in comics for, you know, many, mm-hmm. many years. But the character, as it started in the Marvel comic book universe is close to identical as to how they appeared in this adaptation.
4: Visually or character-wise?
1: Um, both from the very, uh, the very origin.
3: I'm going to stick with Fancy Dan and Clockwork Orange.
0: I, I fancy, fancy Dan. Not you, Dan. <laughs> thanks, thanks. <laughs> no offence. Much I'm, taken. I think, that,
3: I think there might have been a 2001 comic book which will have had to take some liberties with the film and novel.
2: So instead of the monolith arriving at the start, it's actually the symbiote that
3: becomes Venom? Yeah. They throw a bone into the air and it comes down with a bit of black goo on it.
4: That could work.
0: <laughs> I think you're going to have to put us out of our misery here.
4: Yeah. Do you have hazard a guess, Peter? Eddie Brock for the sake of picking someone?
1: Well, I'm afraid you've all got it wrong. It is Machine Man. Uh, Originally X51, or um, a longer serial number with X51 at the end. It was um, an in the adaptation of 2001, which was drawn by Jack Kirby. It was uh, like a really quite, um, you know, they really pushed the boat out on it. Um, various elaborations were made, including, I think it was the factory that ended up making Hal, had its own line of robotics, one of which was touched by the Celestial and gained sentience, right? which was X-51, the Machine Man, who then, due to, for whatever reason, like got its own title and was this kind of weird... It's not quite a Pinocchio tale, but it certainly is of a... Um, someone, a robot that looks like a man trying to understand humanity and being like constantly at odds with it. And that character has gone on to be all kinds of things. Uh, British writer Warren Ellis made him a real sort of joke character who, you know, hated humanity, but it still comes back to this car. It is um, an AI who gained something akin to life by touching, um, touching God, by touching like the unknown in space. Mm. And and he's also been my tip for a Marvel movie for many many years now. So we'll see if he makes it to the next phase.
3: There's no likes issues then. I don't think, the think so. The it's kind of it's
1: kind of interesting. So the um, what's taken the place of like the monolith in Marvel continuity is the uh, Celestials, which are these giant um, you know, like robot god things in space. Uh, in fact, you've seen them in Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. It's a celestial, a giant celestial you see, um, like destroying a planet in um, an early sequence. But the, that's that is the origin of this uh, of this story.
3: Ooh.
0: Excellent, thank you. Now it's time for another shameful gap. Um, this is our regular feature where if one of us nerds has not seen a famous nerdy film, um, well, firstly, shame. Um, And then they go and watch it and come back to the podcast prepared to talk about it. So, who's guilty this week? It is me. Daniel, what have you not watched?
2: I have never seen the cult classic Evil Dead 2. Shame. Shame.
0: (laughs) And what did you think to it?
2: I thought it was all right,
3: I guess. (laughs) Um, Yeah, the world's shortest feature. It's all right.
2: No, I... I was aware of it by reputation beforehand, I knew that Bruce Campbell's character Ash was an iconic horror character, and I'd only heard of that, I'd never seen why that was the case, necessarily, so I was looking forward to watching this, to see where this cult status for the films come from. And I can see it in there, there's a lot of really cool stuff in there. It starts with a prologue talking about the Necronomicon, the Book of the Dead, and... You can't beat a good evil magic book. Uh, you get them in things like The Mummy and in the Unseen University Library in the Discworld and things like that. And the one in this film is particularly evil. It turns people into nasty dead zombie things who try and kill you. And that's dead what... Deadites. Deadites, sorry. And zombies. And that's what happens to Ash's girlfriend, Linda, quite early on in the film. And... That first sequence took me by surprise a lot because he wastes absolutely no time in cutting her head off and burying the corpse um, and seems to have no real guilt or emotional response to that, which was quite surprising, especially considering he was then taken over by the evil and then as soon as the sun came up, he was all right again. So if he just left her... Have you seen the first movie? I have seen the first movie, but quite a long time ago.
4: Because it's basically recapping the first movie in those first couple of minutes. Oh, I
2: see.
3: The first five, ten minutes of the film are the Evil Dead on fast forward.
4: That makes more sense. (laughs) Yeah, simply
3: because uh, they didn't have the rights to footage from the original film. Oh, different production company. Yeah, different production company. So they had to film a previously on Evil Dead. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I wish they'd said
2: that then, 'cause because I just got the impression that Ash was really really callous for cutting her head yeah. off so quickly and um, the same thing
3: happens again if you watch Army of Darkness the third one same problem again the ending of Evil Dead 2 is reshot with a twist to lead into the third one
2: interesting because um, I thought Bruce Campbell got more enjoyable to watch the more over the top things became the more exaggerated his reactions became and the crazier the stuff that was happening became the more entertaining the film was as a result. Um, I enjoyed the origin story for Thing from the Adams family mm-hmm. about halfway through the film um, <laughs> of this disembodied hand wandering around giving people the finger. And yes, that's good. Uh, Ash screaming, Give me back my hand. And then the lo fi effects I thought worked really well. Um, having watched every episode of The Walking Dead, and you can shout shame again on that. Um, I've become quite desensitised to zombie stuff.
4: You know it's the same Greg Nicotero who did a lot of the effects in Evil Dead 2 is also the head guy on Walking Dead. I
2: did not, but I can see the influence. Um, But a lot of the stop-motion, Ray Harryhausen style zombie effects in this actually made the zombies feel a bit more unsettling than the really, really good prosthetic stuff that you get Mm -hmm. on The Walking Dead now. Uh, Just the movements and the jerky nature of the animation worked in making them that little bit more uncanny um so i think the low budget on evil dead 2 worked in its favor for some of the horror um i got the sense of ash as an iconic character once the chainsaw gets attached to his hand and he just goes groovy um that made me think okay yeah i get why people love this character now And from there, it just kind of keeps on going. And the ending took me completely by surprise. Did not expect him to go through a portal and end up by a castle with loads of knights uh, with a chainsaw for a hand. But that's what happened. And that did make me want to see the third one. So job done there, I guess. Overall, I would probably give it seven chainsaws out of ten. But I'm not in a great rush to watch Evil Dead 2 again. But I wouldn't mind seeing the third one.
4: John, did they know they were going to make a third one or did they plan to make a third one when they finished the second? I don't think
3: they necessarily planned to. I think it was always in the back of their mind that it would be a good jumping-off point for a third one. And they kind of forced themselves to do something different. They did do a third one, which they ultimately did. So it was a, it, it, it's almost like a Burning Bridges kind of way. If we, if we make another one, it's going to have to do something different. But didn't
4: they burn the bridge or something in Naval too? They
3: did, yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Can you see the director, Raimi become from it? Can you, is it clear to you kind of the evolution of him from the, that, those kind of early films?
2: There's some really nice directorial touches in the film. Just little things like when the camera will cut to the perspective of the evil spirit or whatever it is, and it'll follow the characters and you're seeing what it is seeing, rather than seeing your characters running away facing the camera I thought there were lots mm. of nice little angles and shots like that that were the mark of a director who's got really
4: good ideas of what he wants to do with his material. The other marks are using his car. What, what mm, sort of car is the it? The Oldsmobile. Yeah, which turns up in all the different Samurai Army films. And also using his brother, Ted mm-hmm. who is Henrietta in the cellar, is actually his brother with all the zombie makeup on. Oh, wow. She, uh, she was really scary. <laughs> he. <laughs> <laughs> he. She.
0: <laughs> what were you doing watching Evil Dead 2 when you have a much larger shameful gap in terms of the entire Lethal Weapon series?
2: Evil Dead 2 shorter? <laughs>
3: <laughs> and apparently 2001, I think we, we might have. Oh, that's me. Uh,
0: you, that's you. Yeah. I have <laughs> seen 2001. Yeah, I've seen and
3: 2001. 2001.
1: Yeah, don't look for the Marvel references. It doesn't quite work <laughs> in the way.
3: There's a brilliant end credit scene though, <laughs> right at the very end, a little little gap. Yeah, when Nick the, Fury uh... turned up at the end, mm-hmm. I was
1: I was just amazed.
3: Yeah. How do you think the mix of uh, horror and comedy work? <laughs> uh,
2: I, I will respond to this by saying the fact that it's taken me this long, uh, listeners, you've missed on. About eight seconds of silence as I've tried to think about this uh, means I probably didn't think it worked that well because it mustn't have been at the forefront of my experience watching it. I got the horror and I got that there was comedy, but I wasn't entirely sure that it was intentional comedy. I didn't know whether it was just oh, this is a bit schlocky, uh, this is quite funny, but I didn't get the impression that that was what they were aiming for.
3: It very much, I think it. I think it is. Yeah, yeah. it's supposed to be like a fairground night. And the Evil Dead series, as it goes on, gets more comedic. So the first Evil Dead is very much a straight, very nasty horror movie.
2: Yeah, sort of your template for ca- a cabin in the woods style horror. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And I remember being... I remember the horror, but no comedy in that one. Yeah. Pretty much.
3: Um, any comedy in it comes from, like, the ridiculous, over-the-top gore effects. The second one is played for laughs a lot more. Is I would say intentionally schlocky. Um... By the time you get to Army of Darkness, which is the third one, you're into one liners, lots of gags, proper jokes. Um I mean I would I wouldn't even call Army of Darkness a horror film, it's a it's a fantasy film with elements of horror, horror. If you if you like Ray Harryhausen um, and battle scenes, um that's the film for you. Done on a very, very low budget. But and lots of Lily Stop Motion in that as well.
2: I will say Evil Dead Two had a lot of gunge. Mm. There's more more gunge and goop than an episode of Get Your Own Back.
3: um, Apparently the reason when they're chopping limbs off, the reason green goo is coming out and blue goo and stuff instead of blood, is that Sam Raimi thought that if he didn't have a lot of actual blood in it, he might get a PG-13 in America. (laughs) Now, having watched the film, that is just one of the most ludicrous concepts, I think.
4: Apparently there's some weird white liquid coming out of Henrietta's yeah I think but that's actually that Ted Brown was really sweating so heavily in the mm-hmm. costume that there was all this sweat coming out from
3: mixed him. with the latex and glue that was yeah. holding it on
0: what do you think is the best horror film of all time that's a question for anyone
3: Transformers <laughs> Transformers 2 <laughs> uh, serious answer I I, I kind of I, I love a good horror movie and it's very hard to pick um, I love Dawn of the Dead the George Romero Dawn of the Dead um, I think that's brilliant. Um, I like the first Evil Dead. I like the first Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, I think Hellraiser is a great film that's been ruined to some extent by the reputation of the numerous bad sequels.
2: As opposed to Nightmare on Elm Street, which has
3: <laughs>
4: had its reputation left intact.
3: Nightmare on Elm Street was saved by the last one. If you count the last proper one as Wes Craven's new Didn't Nightmare. about eight last ones. Yeah, it had, I mean, it's up there with um, Friday the 13th, which has, I think, Friday the 13th Part 3, no, Friday, Friday the 13th 4 is the final chapter. <laughs> uh, and they're now on Part 12 or something like that. <laughs> and there was also... Yeah, um, we're into the appendix. Yes. Part 4 was the final chapter. Um, there was one which was Part 9, which was called Jason Goes to Hell, The Final Friday. Um, so there's been two final Friday the 13th, it's still going strong. Uh, part six of A Nightmare on Elm Street was Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, but then it came back for several more sequels and reboots and remakes. But if you want to see wrapping up a series done well and properly, watch Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which is the seventh Nightmare on Elm Street film, which Wes Craven came back to direct and it is a film about how Freddy Krueger has infiltrated popular culture and how it he's kept in check by the making of the films so it's very meta so um, the character uh, Heather Lagenkamp who played Nancy in the first one plays herself Wes Craven is a character in the film who is writing a new Nightmare in Elm Street film Robert England is both Robert England and Freddy Krueger and it's very metatextual and self-referential and to do with the power of myth and storytelling and also the effect of horror films on kids um, it's a brilliant film that gets overlooked because it's a nightmare on street part seven and also a precursor to scream as well in terms of self-referential meta horror and it's it's a it's a great film that been completely overlooked i
1: think my favorite horror has to be alien i mean i know mm. that's in the mm. sci-fi horror genre but it's just such a clean film it's such a clean concept you know it is it's a bunch of people stuck together with something they don't understand taking them apart and i I love the sort of simplicity of that and then what's Mm. done within it It, it's a visually defining film it's divine uh defined a lot of sci-fi since the cast are just amazing and i love what it doesn't do no one there's you know there's an evil robot but other than that no one betrays anyone it really is people pulling together to try and deal with this unfathomable force but um I, i couldn't say it's the best horror of all time but i've got a real soft spot for the um 1970s invasion of the body snatchers remake mm. which is i've got a series of films which i never want to be sort of caught watching at like two in the morning you know like films that start like then then they end in quite a shocking fashion yeah. and you know you've got to turn off the tv check the locks turn off the lights and that's the archetypal one for me where the end of that kind of rattled me and it's uh, stuck with me for a many, very many years You have a favorite horror
0: um, yeah, I prefer um, films like Alien where you, you, there's a lot of tension and you're on the edge of your seat rather than the kind of all out gore things, um, which I can kind of take or leave. But I, the, the most recent one I saw, which I really enjoyed, was the 2017 remake of It. I really, really enjoyed that. That was um, some, some fantastic acting, um, some genuine kind of shock moments, um, but most importantly, a great plot, really good story. So, And that's more important to me than... Ah. Um, now it's time for a feature that we call taking one for the team which is where we unfortunately have to watch something that has been critically maligned Um, and this time several of us had the misfortune to watch Cloverfield Paradox on Netflix and yes my god how bad is it how bad is it
3: it well, made your thinks- girlfriend swear. Did I've known I've known your girlfriend for five, six years maybe, and I've never heard her swear. Despite knowing you, mm.
4: <laughs>
2: yeah. Um, the the film finished, and her viewpoint could be summed up by her first reaction, which was, "Well, that was a masterpiece
1: of shit."
0: Yeah, I think I wrote to you guys, and like Cloverfield Paradox really is a crock of shit, isn't
1: it? There's no warning that's sufficient. It's uh, like I can't think of many films which go below even the sternest sort of quality warning. It's appalling. It's remarkably appalling. I loved the first
2: Cloverfield, but this was just bloody awful.
0: I, I was offended. I was <laughs> offended by how bad it was. Um, yeah. Can
2: anybody explain the plot? Because I, I just don't know what happened.
0: I no, Well, they didn't explain the plot. There were just random things happening with no context whatsoever. So even if I tried, I couldn't.
3: I really liked Event Horizon. I've not seen Cloverfield Paradox, but as somebody who enjoyed Event Horizon as the least bad Paul W.S. Anderson film.
2: Uh, Pompeii, thank you. I quite
4: enjoyed Death Race. Uh,
3: yeah, uh, the Jason Statham Death yeah. Race, yeah. But it doesn't ask for Rester Stallone. So, you know, it's it's no, no original Death Race.
4: And in its day, Mortal Kombat was the first half-watchable video game adaptation mm-hmm. movie, when they just have the worst. Possible reputation, mm-hmm. the Event
1: Horizon Cloverfield paradox thing. You know that company that makes like knockoff films of Blockbusters, uh, the Asylum. <laughs> yeah. The Asylum, yeah. the yes. yes. They, they, they're doing a kind of Pacific Rim two one, which is already out before the film,
4: and the Atlantic Rim. They call
1: Atlantic it Rim. Series. There you go. So imagine, <laughs> imagine those guys making Event Horizon, yet
3: for more money than Event Horizon, significantly, mm. wor-
1: significantly worse than that. Even without the kind of knowing. Love of the genre, it is. Oh, it's bad. And so, and somehow with a really good cast.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Having not seen it, I, I I will at some point just to see if it's as bad as everyone says. No, don't. No, don't. Like seriously, <laughs> no, really don't. This Step is why we do from the video take one for the team. This
0: is why we do features like this to protect people from wasting two hours of their lives. Genuinely, don't. Mm. It's not worth seeing how bad it is. Just trust us. Is <laughs> it obvious
3: where it's been stitched together into a cloverfield film in a way that? Tim Cloverfield Lane was.
1: Yes. Like, remarkably clear. You Mm -hmm. don't need any kind of, you know, forensic film analysis skills to spot it. It really is just slapped in.
4: Apparently they didn't know how they were going to do it, even when they'd started filming. They made it up halfway through. Surprising no one. I mean, so it was a spec script
1: called The God Particle. It was nothing to do with Cloverfield. It was clearly a quite different film tonally. Like, it's kind of a wacky haunted house thing Mm -hmm. in space. Filmed kind of grittily, but with all the cuts, co- sort of non sequiturs you'd expect from a more kind of jokey film. Almost, it's just a mash together of stuff.
2: There's a bit with a severed arm that is less convincing than the hand with the middle finger in Evil Dead Two. Um, I just find
0: it f- bit funny, but that was it no. can only be an no. Adams no. family no. reference. Was not to find it funny. can't no. be anything <laughs>
1: other than an Adams family reference. It has no reason, no. Point it doesn't make sense even with whatever internal logic the film kind of has and why was elizabeth debicki in the wall <laughs> <laughs> I, I i think i've worked out some of the stuff that happens. so when in the cloverfield paradox uh the space station which is trying to find a new energy source for a, a, an earth that has problems with uh, energy resources um does an experiment and it travels dimensions this is what happens so when it travels dimensions it's in a slightly different space which is how the worms end up in that dude not in the tank and how a crew me- crew member who was um come from the other dimension ends up in the wall. They don't explain that but that is my reading of it. I I am sure that's the case.
2: And the fact that they travel dimensions is what made monsters come to our dimension.
1: Who knows? There's a guy there's a guy at the start who's a there's a radio broadcast and a, a guy f- goes to a phone-in and it essentially describes what the plot might be, which I think was a rewrite. He's going, yeah, it could open dimensions. There might be monsters. I don't know. Bad things could happen. Yeah, Worms in people. I don't know. He just sort of rambles on. And it's the, what you expect the plot to be. Oh, it's terrible. So terrible.
3: you think it will do Netflix any harm? Because they made a big thing about how it's a, you know, they've got this movie and they're going to drop it and it's on in two hours. The big Super Bowl advert.
4: But Maybe that was before they had time to watch it.
3: Possibly, yeah. <laughs> but the
2: thing is, we have all watched it. So, yeah. as far as mm. Netflix is concerned, job done because loads mm. of people
0: watch yeah.
3: it. I have
1: rated it poorly. <laughs> yeah. Well, Net-
0: Netflix never released their viewing figures. So, you know, they're, they're not going to say whether it's a success mm. or not. But
3: it's whether. Are people now not going to suspect a new film that's going to be on Netflix as being a piece of crap that's been dumped there by the. Because Clover Paradox was dumped by Paramount, wasn't it? Essentially. They. They didn't want to visit theatrically. allegedly bought for a song. Yeah.
2: yeah. It's worse than Bright, John.
3: Oh my God,
1: no. The um, the kind of Netflix's reputation thing. Do you remember when You 2 released an album straight to your iTunes and yeah. no one knew yeah. about it and then people were complaining? It's like, Pop- I
0: wrote a blog about it, just saying get, Apple, get off my music playlist. This is it. I <laughs> heard someone
1: say it's like I've woke up when my phone's got herpes, which is <laughs> really
3: interesting. No, is- People said, "Oh, it's free." It's like you know, if you put if you shit an envelope and put, put it off a door, it's free. It doesn't mean I want it in my house.
1: What's um, <laughs> what's most appalling about the Cloverfield Paradox is it's such a waste. It's such a waste of talent. The cast is great. It's visually actually like quite impressive. It's quite a beautiful thing. It's got a premise that you know, as sci-fi people we really like. And I had no idea. The spec script may have been really good. You know what I mean? It really could have been, given given that premise. But this mashed together, tonally all over the place, embarrassment of stuff (laughs) just upsets me.
0: Uh, that brings us to the end of another NerdFest podcast. Thank you very, very much for listening. And you have been listening to...
1: I'm Ian Mayer. Dan Watkins. Peter Johnson. John Farthing.
0: And I'm Hazel Burton. Uh, get involved in our social channels on Twitter and Facebook at Nerdfest UK. Let us know what you think. Leave us a rating, review or anything else you'd like to give us. That'd be great. Um, Money. <laughs>
3: we didn't get any Endorsements. pop chips. No pop chips were said despite me tagging them relentlessly in our in our promotion i expected a big box of pop chips
0: must try harder
2: we we would like any sponsors give us free things
0: how can you say no to that you know
2: i think we did our job for rhino conservation we should get a rhino
0: (laughs) we
3: should agree i don't want a box of rhinos arriving in the post
4: (laughs) (laughs) i think rhino conservation doesn't mean you get to keep one (laughs) we would conserve it
0: anyway thank you very much for listening put in a Uh, jar
2: like a jam (laughs) minor jam protect it from poachers
0: okay can I, can I finish wrapping things up? You may. Great. Okay, cool. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Uh, catch our uh, future ep- episodes in the future. Thank you
4: very much. <laughs> As opposed to in the past.
2: <laughs> well, hey. with the Cloverfield paradox, they're the same thing, maybe. Yeah, what we've
3: done is a we've woman gone of sense. and left free shit episodes <laughs> at random times in the past. <laughs> Seemingly unrelated. It's like twelve monkeys. <laughs> just <laughs> occasionally an episode turns up until <laughs> so until. Just... just come back jubilee with an iPod in my hand.
0: Oh dear! <laughs> Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you soon. Bye. 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 Bye.
2: Who's laughing now?